Welcome everybody to another edition of Stick a Fork in It. This may be our most important podcast because we are all Florida State Seminoles here in this podcast. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gotta yeah. start with big stuff. Welcome uh, to our special guest today, Robin Safley. Hey, Robin, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's so exciting to be here with you guys. Via Zoom. <laughs> so Robin, you uh you know, we're, we'll get into all this stuff about work later, but first yeah. we want to learn a little bit about you. It sounds like from uh, your voice that you might be a little old school Floridian. Am I correct? I am. I'm born and raised in Tallahassee. Actually, uh, never lived anywhere else. So I went to, uh, you know, elementary, middle, high school, then FSU undergrad and FSU law school. So I'm a double null. Nice. Wow. As am I. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, it's, it, I think there was always a, a time when I wanted to, to, to move out of Tallahassee, but I think it's such a really wonderful place um, to raise kids um, that it just was always a great place to stay. And, you know, what is so incredible about Florida is the diversity, yeah. um, you know, Florida of Tallahassee, if you've ever, of course, you know, this, it's more like Southern Georgia. So, um, and now that I'm an avid outdoors person who likes to off-road bike, it's it's the best place for me to play. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, we uh, we bring the boys up every year, and you know we usually camp about an outside, hour outside of town and uh, play in the woods, and you know they get to be cavemen and all of that good stuff, and it's just a wonderful place. So I I can understand why you never left. Yeah. Yep. So you mentioned so. you raised kids there. Tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah, so um, I have two daughters. Uh, they're 22 months apart. One is 30 and one is 28. Um, Avery's in Atlanta. She just got married. We actually had a COVID. I mean, she was due to be married April 25th. So you can, I mean, we had it all planned out. We're going into the final stages. There's 250 people attending. It's an outdoor, you know, uh, event with a big band coming and then the world shuts down. Uh, so she took it like a trooper, you know, that's what I always hope that I've raised resilient children who take a hit and keep going and that kind of thing. Um, and she did, and we rescheduled it for October 3rd. And of course, you know, thinking that six months would be reasonable. Um, so then we had to, again, change venues and we reduced the footprint substantially of the wedding. So we just pulled that off to, um, October 3rd and added some, you know, a lot of the stuff that we had for the wedding actually said April 25th on it. Um, so I think it's just humorous. You know, we went with it, but we did buy everyone masks. And on the mask, we had printed quarantined for life. <laughs> Avery and Eric. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, and then my other daughter, Caldwell, who I named after you know, my maiden name, um, is uh, living in, in Denver. And so she's loving life out there. And her little uniqueness is she's a leap day baby. So I had her on February 29th, 1992. So she only gets a birthday every four years. So it makes me younger as a mother, right? That's right. right. She'll be young forever. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I got remarried about 21 years ago uh, to Sandy Safley, who actually was a member from and um, for uh, Palm Harbor and Clearwater in the legislature for 10 years. So he and I have been married 21 years and he has two children. And so on his side, He's a little older than me, so he's got, uh, we've got six grandchildren on that side, so, That's and awesome. yeah, so life is full. We, we run the gambit. It sounds like it. It sounds like you have some great connections to the Tampa Bay area, too. Yeah, we've got some good friends down there. 
Um, it's beautiful. I mean, I love, you know, I think, in fact, when, when he moved up to Tallahassee, the first thing we did was buy a beach house because he missed the water. You know, all those bridges, as much as there's traffic, at least you get to view that water when you're going around. So it's gorgeous. That's my commute every day. I drive over a bridge and I, I love it as an opportunity to kind of decompress from the day or get ready in the morning. And, uh, you know, often I'll be driving across the Courtney Campbell and I'll have dolphins pacing me oh. away. You know? <laughs> yep. And especially during this time, right? The such a crazy world that we're living in. Um, those little peaceful, tranquil moments, we just have to absorb them. Absolutely. Well, in every moment, now we're heading into the holidays and, uh, you know, what is your favorite meal? You know, you're talking about your family and you have this amazing blended family and you have all these grandchildren. And if you were to picture your favorite meal around the table, what would that meal be, Robin? So the, the joke in my family is, is that I don't ever think about food technically. I guess with all the triathlons and stuff that I've done, I, I put food as just fuel intake and I'm not a really good cook. Um, so, but my, and with that said, my favorite meal is I do love steak. Um, I know that's not the healthiest apparently for you, but, um, and I like a, a ribeye. So I like even the fat in the steak. I don't even like a filet. Um, but I think if you were going to do that, it'd be a steak and a baked potato and broccoli, broccoli. I could eat broccoli and probably do almost five days a week. So then you definitely miss Nicholson's farmhouse, which has the best ribeye oh. in the history of the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Although my husband can cook up a mean one. We go to, we go to Publix and we get them to cut us like a two and a half inch, you know, green wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So it's, it's really good. It is ironic that you don't uh, think of food all that much. We joke with Thomas all the time, you know, and he'll be our special guest at the end of this episode uh, because he really doesn't care all that much about food either, other than what it does to, you know, to fuel and support people. But well, I think when you've done endurance um, training and I know Thomas uh, uh, did St. Anthony's triathlon, which y'all did that the great videos that were done around that for him were hilarious. Um, but once you, you just, I think do that kind of endurance and I've done six Ironmen. Um, it, you really, it puts it back in perspective of it's meant to fuel your tank. And so, um, you know, you just are, it's a means to an end, not, I mean, don't get me wrong. I enjoy a really great meal with friends and that type of thing, but it's not my focus. So the kids don't call me when they're coming to visit, they call um, my husband and make sure that there's food in the refrigerator. <laughs> it's really more about the social and being together. Yes, that's how I, I think of atmosphere, right? Like everybody else is worried about what we're cooking. I'm like, which candles will we light? And, um, you know, are the flowers, you know, out? And um, so, yeah. Are you for the decor? Yeah, but my, do, my kids do joke. And in fact, this was, they were joking recently in that um, I, I have a tendency to burn things, right? Because I'm not a good cook. So when they were little, you know, everybody does this. You forget the toast is in the oven and you get going in within seconds. Um, same with popcorn. I might overcook it. So you've got, so they now though in their world, they they prefer burnt popcorn and burnt toast. Um, because that's what they were raised. So you can be socialized that's into anything, right? <laughs> That's how, that's actually how my girlfriend is with vegetables. She won't eat Brussels sprouts unless they're like a little charred. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it you know, makes life easier once you learn to, to go there. I mean, think of the world that opens up for you. 
<laughs> so I, I think <laughs> I, I feel like we I feel like we glossed over the fact that you have run Ironman races. <laughs> yes, yes. That's uh, that's really impressive. You, you've done a few triathlons. How how many total have you have you done? Um, with sprints and and um, half Ironman and Ironman. Gosh, probably in the 30s or so. I mean, I've done six Ironman, and um, I also with the other fun thing is I swam around Key West. <laughs> just casually um, well it's actually a it's an organized race they do once a year and it's called you know the 37th annual swim around key west or the 38th whatever year it is and i did it in 2014 when i um about to date myself how old was i 2014 anyway i was um 50 so uh you you it's 12 and a half miles um and you have to have a designated kayaker um, for safety reasons, um, because volunteer for that role. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, my husband was my kayak boy and he was like, I don't even know if I can paddle this. <laughs> Great. Um, but yeah, so we, you know, we tied rope around, um, water bottles and some of my water bottles had water in them and some of them had, um, a carbohydrate fluid for fueling. Um, I wasn't allowed to touch the bottom or a boat. Um, and it took me six hours and 39 minutes. But this was the cool thing. The friends that I stayed with down there, um, Diana Nyad, who I'm confident you're familiar with, who swam um, from Cuba, uh, stayed with them and actually trained in those waters a great deal. So after the race, when I completed it, um, they texted Diana about what I had done and she emailed me um, and said, congratulations. I look forward to meeting you. I'd love to talk to you about what you thought about the water. I spent a lot of time in that water and that was pretty cool. So I put it in my little chest that, you know, when I somehow I'm not on this, on this earth again, my kids can look back and, you know, now pay attention to maybe what I've done. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I could float in a bathtub for six hours, let alone swim for six hours straight. <laughs> well, I'll tell you um, the, a little funny story. So, you know, FSU has a new, it's not new anymore, but Morecambe is their really phenomenal swim facility. And it's, it's got long course up a lot and it stays open. And I needed air places to practice that were open for at least five hours or six. Um, and so, you know how a lifeguard is, right? Cause I used to be a lifeguard. They have to sit in the chair as long as one person's in the pool. So here I get in the pool, you know, this old lady and um, I swum for five hours and I forgot to tell them what I was doing. So I'm the, you know, after, I don't know, three hours, I'm out there by myself. And so when I stop, the, the guard comes over, he gets down from the chair and he comes over and he goes, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I promise I will bring y'all cookies. I feel so bad. I'm going to do this a couple more times. <laughs> I was going to say, can you bring meals and snacks? Yeah, well, you know, you, yeah, you have to kind of hover over the side of the pool and not touch it. Um, and try to, and the other little secret is I actually put salt in one of my water bottles because during a swim like that, there's no way to not take in some of the salt water and you don't want your stomach to turn. Um, so I had to kind of practice, um, you know, adapting to that. So. Wow. It's wow. impressive. Yeah. Now, I know we talked a lot about the swim, but let's not gloss over the other parts of an Ironman. Right. Yes. If our, if our listeners don't know, I think it would be important for you to share what exactly 
you do in the course of an Ironman? Yeah, it's a 2.4 mile swim. It's a 112 mile bike. And then it's a full marathon, which is 26.2 miles on the backside. <laughs> Most people just run a marathon and they call yeah. that, you know, that's yeah, good enough. Did, yeah. Um, yeah, in 2010, I qualified for Boston. So I, I did run the Boston in 2011, but um, that's because I, uh, in 2009, in my Ironman competition, where I was really probably at my fittest, um, I almost qualified for Hawaii. Um, and the, what I got past, so the top four slots in my, or top three slots in my age group got to Hawaii. Um, and I came in fifth. Um, but I was first overall um, or first in that age group up until the last part of the marathon. And then I got passed. So I was first out of the water, first off the bike, um, averaged 22 miles an hour on the bike for 112 miles. And, um, but then got passed. And so, you know, we all, you know, I, Ironman, I, I take all that I learn in an Ironman and I really do actually apply it to my career also. Right. Like you've got to, Sometimes you have to have memory so that when you get tired, you can fall back on, I got this, I've done this before, I can do this. And so I had a conversation that always told people, and I would say it jokingly, yeah, but I'm just not a good runner. You know, it's not my strong suit. And so what happens, though, is when you start breaking down tired, you default to that, you know, internal voice, um, and then your body reacts to that and breaks down. So I was going to parlay that, go qualify for Boston to show myself that I could run fast and then take that into the next year's Ironman. Um, but my mother had a couple strokes and family obligations called, which is what we do. Right. And, Absolutely. and then of course I got the opportunity to work with commissioner Putnam um, and, and handle the transfer of the child nutrition programs. And so I used to joke with him and say, you know, that this job has cost me, 45 minutes of my best Ironman time because I can't train uh, like I used to. <laughs> the Humana Foundation and Feeding Tampa Bay work together to address food insecurity. Our goals are to strategically bring about healthy outcomes and create meaningful, sustainable change for our neighbors throughout the 10-county region that we serve. You'll find out more this spring. One hint, food RX. Learn more about it at feedingtampabay.org programs. It brings up an interesting point. I'm, I'm curious to hear how you went from law school to ending up working alongside Commissioner Putnam. Well, I would tell you, you know, either you look at my resume and you go, wow, she, she's maybe talented or you go, wow, she really can't hold a job. Um, <laughs> so it just depends on how you look at it. Um, I graduated from law school when I was 24. So I went right from undergrad and and popped out and went into private sector. But obviously in Tallahassee was such a government um, experience. And my former brother-in-law was Speaker of the House, um, actually from Palmetto, uh, Ralph Haven. Um, so you may know Haven Boulevard down there in Manatee. Um, yep. That's named after him. So he was a big influence in my life. Um, he and Lee Moffitt. So I know that y'all know that name also uh, with Moffitt Cancer Center being right there. They're, they kind of raised me and... Um, he was like, you know, you, I think you're a little bit of a pain, but I, you know, you debate me a lot, but I think you're pretty smart. And so he was really the instigator of me going to law school. And then when I came out, you know, being in a government town and having been around that environment, um, I went, my first government job was I was general counsel to Andrew Crenshaw, 
who was the minority leader in the Senate. Um, and then I became general counsel to the Department of Commerce when we had one under Governor Childs. Um, and that was 1994. And then the Republicans took control of the Senate in 1994. It was a really, um, you know, it was 2020 and 92, and then it went 24 or, you know, to uh, 18. Um, and so Senator Scott, who was from Broward County, um, I had worked with before, and he asked me to come in and be his chief of staff. Um, so I was chief of staff in the Senate when I was 30 years old. Um, and then later, two years after that, because those are, you know, those are political appointments, right? They don't last a lifetime. Um, I came out back in, worked for Enterprise Florida, which was our economic arm when we dismantled Department of Commerce. And then Charlie Chris got elected um, commissioner of education. And I know you all know Charlie from that area. Um, and uh, he, they asked me to come in and be his chief of staff to the commissioner of education, which was extremely a, an incredible experience. Um, and then I, um, after that two year, I popped back out. My kids were in middle school. And so I thought that that was really a good time for me to, to be more flexible with them. You know, I think kids even need you more as they're um, going through those phases of life, um, even more so than they need you in the younger years um, when they don't have some of the influences around them. Um, so I did consulting for about nine years um, in a lot of the health um, and hunger space. Um, if you'll remember back in, um, you know, the 2002, right when the conversation became, you know, nutrition and obesity and what are we doing in our country. So I was hired by um, Capital Health Plan here in Tallahassee that is a subsidiary of Florida Blue um, to really work in the community on educating and working with the school system um, on nutrition and, and that type of stuff, which was a passion. So then long story is um, Commissioner Putnam gets elected and my husband had served with Adam. Um, he was a friend. And so one of the issues that his was big to him was to, to, to legally, like through the legislative process, move the child nutrition programs, which is school lunch and breakfast and summer feeding over to the Department of Ag, which always handled TFAP and the school commodity programs and marry them because he really felt like it would be a better fit um, for uh, farm to school and bringing the community into that setting. And so um, we, he and I talked and he said, would you be willing to come back into government? And at that time, my kids were both in college out of state. Um, so I didn't, you know, I was an empty nester per se. And I was like, yeah, this could be fun. You know, I love nutrition. You know, I'm a fitness um, kind of, you know, nut. And um, I thought it would just be fun. And I love policy. I always have. Um, I love learning new things and dissecting stuff. And of course, this was real big. If you will recall, in 2010, we had the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act that implemented the new school pattern in the school lunch program. So it was going to be a really complicated lift, which makes it all the more fun. So I was really excited that he he trusted me with that initiative. And so I ran those until I came and joined Feeding Florida. Hey, you know, Robin, what I love hearing in in that thread of a story is that what really mattered is what difference you could make and, and the good things you could do, the policies that you could implement. And it wasn't really about, you know, a political spectrum, right or left or D or R. It was good government and good uh, use of, of public money to and and the public will to do good things in the community. I, I love hearing the way in which your career evolved and you gained those experiences that then allowed you to be in that place where we needed in the state of Florida 
somebody who really understood the levers of government, somebody who really understood the opportunity there to work day to day alongside Adam and make those things happen. It's, it's a neat, uh, it's just neat to hear that the policy and the, you know, the outcome or what drove, it sounds like to me anyway, what drove your, your decisions along the way. Yeah. And I couldn't be, you know, happier. I mean, I, you know, you, it's funny when people go, well, so how did you plan your career? I go, I don't think I did, you know, um, I, I think all of us, right. I've, I've said this often. Sometimes if you get too focused, too focused on a goal, you miss opportunities that poke their head in because you're not looking for them. Um, and I think I've always kept my eyes open and, and it's never, I mean, I talk to my daughters about this and I'm confident you talk to your children about this. They're like, well, I don't know what my passion is. I said, really, it, everything always boils down. I don't care what job you're in. It boils down to people and troubleshooting and problem solving and negotiating, right? It, it, I don't care. You can put that on any topic. Um, and it's really all about how do you forward people in your environment? And so I thought it was really, I mean, obviously, and I, you know, the, the programs are still doing incredible under Commissioner Freed and um, she's carrying on. I mean, she's a great leader also. But, you know, Commissioner Putnam, you know, said, Robin, make this user friendly for people, right? He, he was not a bureaucratic um, type individual. And the fact that those programs got moved under a cabinet office um, and not a state agency um, even allows more freedom to, to do some creative things. And so that would, the fact that he allowed me to do that, so, so that when you're, when you're interacting with people that you're technically regulating, and you can have more of a policy of how do I help you be successful instead of how do I catch you not doing the right thing is really positive for me because that's how I like to be. I don't want to be, I never was that kind of an attorney to, you know, I gotcha or conflict. Um, I was a certified mediator. I like creating win-wins. Um, so it's really nice when you can work for someone in government that has that same kind of um, theory. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's it you know, so many times um, there can be friction between policy and, and especially for nonprofits, what we feel like is the best way to approach a solution or, or an opportunity. And um, it really feels like with the Department of Agriculture, they're helping us co-create solutions or working alongside. They really want us to be able to do what we think is best for those that we serve. And uh, I'm sure a lar in large part, that was due to how you set things up from day one. So uh, your work, your good work has continued. And uh, you're right, Nikki and her team have carried that forward. And um, it's, it's really, it's not a typical uh, regulatory relationship for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been fun even to continue to work um, with ag. You know, I had, to, I had to stay away from ag for two years just because there's, um, at the position I held, um, you, you're not allowed to lobby or engage. Um, I, I, so it's been fun since, of course, I've been in, at, with Feeding Florida now five years, which is amazing. I think it might be, guys, the longest job I've ever held. So be careful, you know, no, I'm teasing. No, <laughs> No, no, no. I was thinking they may get rid of me. I'd tease them. But, um, but it's been fun interacting with them because, you know, Lakeisha Hood, who is, um, you know, my predecessor, who I worked with closely over there, is just sharp as attack and capable um, and is um, gifted at, at negotiating, working things out. But also, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say 
when I became passionate about hunger, right? Because all the tools that I had there were all um, government programs addressing one issue, which is hunger. And so once I got sort of things set up over there, I was like, I really need to see this from another angle. Um, And really how do we, with a country as rich and wealthy and even a a state that has such a robust, um, you know, agriculture community, how do we have people that are hungry and how can, how can we connect those dots a little bit better, um, not just from the charitable arm, but also from the retail um, and create a more dynamic food system for all Floridians. Um, so I was just really fortunate that this position and, and obviously the Feeding Florida board um, took a bet on me and hired me. So um, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like a pig in mud. I'm in heaven. <laughs> you know, it's so funny that you say that because I think um, if you ask the three of us, we would not have imagined our careers winding to the place where we were at a food bank either. Yeah. And all of us feel like a pig in mud too. We love, we love our work. We love our, you know, coworkers. We, we love the difference we get to make in the community. And I'm sure seeing it from a state level is, is just really fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it is um, when you're troubleshooting or you're trying, especially, I mean, think about our network, right? We um, have, we face a lot. Um, and we're the really the first responders in many instances on on the crisis um, in, you know, I, and we can talk about it, but we've even become more pronounced in emergency management um, with hurricane relief. Um, they, you know, our my predecessor actually got us at the table, if you will, um, at the Division of Emergency Management with ESF six, which is um, the function for mass mass feeding. But again, remember, we went 13 years in the state without um, being deployed or anyone being deployed because we had a really uh, hiatus from hurricanes. So when I think it was in my first um, six, you know, four months on the job, uh, we we got activated with Hermine. And I think Matthew was a scare that year, that same year. Um, and of course, I'm sitting at the table and there there's no breadcrumbs. No one left me a path. But I was like, you know what? We got the the network together and we said, well, we're going to do what we do every day. And I think that's what is um, in a way so so easy for us. Right. Um, But also we're so unknown because um, and I'm talking to y'all from this perspective. Yeah, I have a cool job. But what y'all do on the ground to me is truly the hard work um, and all the moving parts and, you know, the areas that you have to cover, um, the things you have to coordinate. Uh, and and the, the the job that y'all do under stress is just amazing. And, and it was, I think, only made my job easier to know I had that talent and that commitment of a network um, and accountability um, uh, to, to lean in. So I, you know, I, I get to just be the icing on the cake, if you will, the sort of the, the go between liaison, but between the doers and the, uh, and the state, but it's an honor. Um, and, and, you know, we've keeping some incredible stats over the last um, four years on hurricanes and what our network is capable of doing. And it's amazing to see that we, on a dime, y'all, um, can increase operations by 300% um, in a sprint um, uh, to get the job done. And it's just phenomenal. Yeah, you know, it's it's timely to talk about this right now because, it's a different kind of disaster response, but we just hit uh, nine and a half million meals in this past month. Mm-hmm. And 
our previous high in any year before 2020, I don't think we ever crossed 5 million meals in a month. So, you know, it it is just incredible the way our network responds. Um, You know, when you talk about disaster, it really makes me think of the way that we support one another across the Feeding Florida food banks. And so I know you have 13 or 15 or whatever it is, babies that you all, you love, but we know you're our, we are your favorite. Um, <laughs> I, I love me some Tampa Bay. That's right. <laughs> Tampa uh, Bay. But just a couple of weeks ago, I was telling you, I, uh, I was visiting Tallahassee and then I have a, I have a great friend who's a priest down in Panama city and they were hit really, really hard with hurricane Michael in 2018. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, um, it was neat to go there and see because I was talking with Father Mike and he said, yeah, you know, for for a month afterwards, my parking lot was a distribution center. And, you know, in many ways, it still is two years out. And, you know, they've built these enduring relationships. And then I went back and, and talked to some folks on our team and we... Uh, you know, supported our sister food bank and sent team members who actually worked alongside Father Mike. So, you know, it's really neat to see the way our food banks support one another. No, and Matt, you couldn't be more real. I mean, you know, after, um, I think Irma, right, was the real wake up call for the state too. I mean, dusted off all the cobwebs of, oh, you know, because that one just big came up the whole state. I think um, 60 counties were declared out of 67. Um, and they, so we were all in the same boat together. And, and out of that, if you'll recall, we did a strategic plan for the network on what worked, what didn't work, how can we refine ourselves? Um, and one of the things came out of that, obviously not in that scenario, but in future, is how do we leverage off of each other's capabilities? And what was just you know incredible is that when Michael hit um, in the panhandle, such an isolated, in a way, storm, but such a tragic storm um, in a part of the state that doesn't have a great deal of infrastructure anyway. Um, the, y- y'all, the other you know, 11 food banks, well, it was two food banks mainly involved in the panhandle. So the other uh, 10 just absolutely stepped up to the plate. It was amazing to see, you know, y'all raising money, um, you know, at your area to collect food and then literally loan trucks and drivers up there for weeks at a time. Um, and there was not one food bank in our state uh, that didn't support those operations. And, you know, that's what I think is, um, you know, we, there are a lot of people who feed and there are a lot of people um, who are doing some great things. I think one thing that sets feeding Florida's network apart is that leveraging ability, as well as our affiliation um, with Feeding America, because during those times, um, you know, I'm also calling on Feeding America with their national donors uh, to get food and to, you know, support y'all's efforts. Um, So, and I think the state of Florida sees that too, that um, we're not a zero-sum game, right? If they give me 10 boxes to distribute, I'm going to take that 10 and marry it with 90, of my own boxes or y'all's boxes. And now we've got a hundred boxes going. So, and personally on a policy standpoint from someone who's worked in government from a policy perspective, you don't ever wanna be the anchor tenant, right? Um, With a partner. If the partner only can survive if they have you, then they're probably not contributing much to um, to the solution either. So what I love is that even during COVID, right? Which is 
if I, if a hurricane's a sprint, then COVID is a marathon, if not a, um, an endurance race, a 50 K or maybe a hundred miler. Um, and you know, at the beginning, uh, you know, the state of Florida purchased food, um, for their feeding partners. Um, and we were distributing, you know, the, uh, really the largest amount of that product, probably 92% uh, of what the, for, what the state bought. And it still only represented, depending on the week, between 4 and 10% of our inventory. Um, so I think that that is just a really good win-win um, for the state. Um, and that partnership, of course, we care about helping them make good decisions. And, you know, the fact that we are uh, on a regular basis, if not every week, hit every county in the state um, and have such a massive network of not-for-profits that we work with. Again, you know, a lot of people see that front end not-for-profit and they don't see the silent partner in the back, y'all, um, feeding Tampa Bay, um, supporting money or, you know, with money maybe to enhance them or food. Um, but it's just amazing. Yeah, I was going to say that right now at the peak, our network on a on a on, under blue skies, no no COVID and no hurricane, um, distributes about 5.5 million pounds a week. Um, peak of COVID, it's been 12 million pounds, um, and is it's really stabilizing at that. You've seen some fluctuation. Um, again, I don't know that the I can only count the output, right? I can't tell if that output is meeting the full demand. Um, but it's definitely the food we have. So I think what's incredible is that our food banks are working 100% above capacity and they're doing that for the long haul, right? That's become the new normal. Florida Blue's mission is to help people and communities achieve better health. In partnership with Feeding Tampa Bay, their collective goal is a hunger-free Tampa Bay by 2025. How will we do that? by ensuring that all our neighbors have access to fresh, nutritious food that is essential to a healthy and capable lifestyle. We invite you to join the movement. Visit hungerfree2025.com. Every month when we look at our dashboard and we see that big spike and then it maintaining across month after month after month, you know, it, it really puts in perspective not only what we're enabling, but what our partners are doing, um, you know, and, and you've said a couple times uh, creating win-win solutions. And to me, that's what our relationship is with you. That's what our relationship is with Feeding America. That's what our relationship is even down to our individual agency partners. You know, that's really the neat thing about this food relief system that we have in our country is that we really do build and support one another across a variety of levels and functions. And yeah. uh, you really do a fantastic job of knitting that together at the state level. Well, thanks. And I think also, I mean, it, it, we, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk really about also sort of pre-COVID and it's still working, but you know, where the Feeding Florida Network and I know Feeding Tampa Bay is front and center in this, which is, so yes, we want to feed that family today. But we really, at the end of this game, want to interrupt. We want them to not need us, right? We want to shorten the line. Um, so you guys are doing, and a lot of our food banks are doing some incredible things around workforce and uh, development and bringing you know, other resources around that family unit um, to stabilize them so that they can advance um, and ultimately not need, you know, need help. Um, I often say... 
um, you know, we're on the, um, we sit on the uh, Florida Chambers Prosperity um, Partnership. Um, I represent the network on that. Um, and we often say, you know, hunger, when you highlight and identify hunger, like our meal deficit metric has done, um, it shows you, it does, hunger is not poverty. Hunger is a symptom of an under-resourced house. However, you can't really advance that family, right, with extra training um, or better grades in school. There may be health, some health care or mental health issues, but food becomes also imperative to stabilize that family. So you can look at hunger two ways, right? Hunger, when you identify, it shows you there's something else going on in that house, um, but in order to advance that house, you need to feed them because it's such a core foundational thing that is important for success. So, um, you know, we're very lucky that I think food is now on that, that um, in health and hunger and the, you know, that whole world is people are understanding the significant role that food plays um, in understanding some things and stabilizing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It kind of goes back to, to how we started the conversation that, for you, food is fuel, right? And you know, when you look at our strategic plan, our outcomes that we're driving towards are not food. Food is our resource. Food is our tool. But health and capability, those are the outcomes that we're looking for. And you, you, know, you wrapped it up perfectly by saying that it's, it's those workforce development initiatives, it's the family support services and family stability work that we're doing that really will lead us to those places of health and capability. And it, it speaks to the real thoughtfulness that you've put into feeding Florida's role in the larger ecosystem of, of our state and, and of our kind of policy world. So what could somebody, you know, a, a listener to the podcast uh, how could they help you? Oh, I mean, I, you know, first of all, I, I think just helping, helping my members, you know, supporting the network, um, you, uh, you know, money is not what I need. Money is what y'all need. Um, and I, I can say this, you know, that um, as much as we'd love to donate a can, really giving um, a dollar or money to a food bank is so much more, um, functional, if you will, because of your buying power and capacity, and also to get the food um, that is really needed for the population. Um, what I think is where my goal is, is just to continue to raise the awareness of the role that hunger plays um, in policy issues. I'm very excited about some things that Department of Children and Family are doing under their, the new leadership with um, Chad Popple and around, you know, what food, um, you know, how food plays in a family, and then what does that tell you also about that family unit? So, again, I think the more, unfortunately, and I, you know, I'm an eternal optimist, as much as we, COVID has been, you know, a, a struggle and a strain on our economy and our welfare and our moral, you know, just exhaustion and that kind of thing. I think the silver lining has been that there are a lot of people that find themselves needing food that would have never thought um, they would have needed food. And sometimes um, I think that can help create empathy um, and awareness of how fragile your life is, you know, in that it could happen to anyone. And so, you know, my goal as a policy person for the network is to, to parlay that into that hunger is real. 
Um, hunger is right next door. Um, and it's not something that's beyond our capability of addressing, right? I always say it's not, well, we're not trying to, you know, house people on Mars, right? We're not doing the really hard stuff. We're trying to connect an asset that exists um, with a person who needs it when they need it in the right proportion that they need it. Um, it's just a supply chain issue, right? So, um, that's, that's, that's what I think is, if I had anything is I just would want to put hunger on a larger platform um, and coordinate some efforts that are already going out, you know, unify. Yeah. Unify. Well, that's a perfect way to uh, end our podcast today. Robin, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Stick a Fork in It. Our last question, which I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is. If you wanted to stick a fork in it, friend, what would that be? What, stick a fork in? What would you want to stick a fork in if you could? Oh my goodness. Well, I have a 50K uh, race this weekend um, and I've got two broken ribs, so I'll stick a fork in that. Hey, oh my word. Okay. Well, with that, I'm going to go sit on the couch. <laughs> That's not true. Well, actually we have Thomas Mance up next and he's going to deep dive into feeding Florida and what feeding Florida means to this, our state. And uh, he's on the board there and uh, what, how we work with our partners throughout the state as well. So what the food bank with Thomas Mance is up next. Hey, everybody. Thanks for sticking around for our segment, What the Food Bank. We have with us today our CEO and favorite person, Thomas Mance. Hi, Thomas. Hi. Glad to be here with you all. Yeah, welcome back. Yeah, you've been with us before. Yes, I have, I have been frequent. I've uh, I've been a guest at least once. Yeah, at least once. I don't really make the cut overall, but I think I've been a guest once. We try to squeeze for you maybe in five we can. minutes. Right. <laughs> well, you're back. That's right. the important I'm part. I'm thrilled to be back with yeah. this esteemed group. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. So, mm-hmm. but we really do need your help because we were really pleased to have Robin mm-hmm. um, from Feeding Florida join us, and she was very engaging and wonderful. What a journey her career has been mm-hmm. and uh, she t- had a lot of great stories to tell but a few things we wanted to dive a little deeper with especially please explain feeding Florida as an organization to us because there was a lot of information there but we kind of need an overall on what their role is mm-hmm. I you know when we think about food relief folks are most familiar with the idea that like feeding Tampa Bay coordinates with the 500 agencies we support right uh, so it's a collective approach to food relief Well, you do the same thing on the state level. You create a collective approach. So all of us major food banks get together and work collectively. And we do that because it increases capacity and capability, right? So we're able to leverage each other's resources and and, uh, and capabilities. It creates better connections so that we're covering the state more uh, thoughtfully. Um, it helps us uh, advocate for our cause collectively, which is important, of course, when you're talking about uh, elected folks. Uh, but also uh, think about the number of statewide, uh, number of partners we have that are statewide, a Florida Blue, a Publix, all of those love a collective approach. So food relief happens best when it happens with uh, with with uh, with each other and, and working together, in order to make that most effective, we needed a structure to help us run that. 
that's feeding Florida. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, they make sure that the uh, 12 or 13 food banks that are a part of the major food relief in the state of Florida, that our work coordinates, collaborates, works effectively together, uh, has a thoughtful approach to food relief, uh, has a thoughtful approach to our partners and who we can work with. Uh, and so it creates a coordinated strategy. And that ultimately makes it easier for us to do our work. But I would also tell you that I think it's important because it also provides us maximum return for minimum investment, right? The better you collaborate and coordinate, the more farther your money goes. And so Feeding Florida helps us do all of that. Wonderful. And then as far as working with the state, is that what Robin's position primarily is? Right. Well, you think of, you know, when we think of food relief, we tend to think of making sure we put a meal on a table. And that's a that's a critical element to the work that we do. Or now we think about making sure we connect someone to a benefit. Right. But one of the major roles that food relief providers need to be a part of is how do you advocate for those you serve? Right. How do you tell their story? So when we do something like this podcast, we're advocating for those we serve by trying to tell the story of those we serve. Uh, But another major part of advocacy is making sure that those who are elected to represent us understand the circumstances and conditions of those we serve and then hopefully develop policies and practices that are favorable. Right. So that all sounds really good. What does that mean? At the end of the day, if an elected official understands that enacting a policy or not enacting a policy affects or adversely affects someone, then that's important. And part of our job is to make sure we tell those stories, that we have those conversations. One of Feeding Florida's main job is to do that for all of us, right? Right. They're right in Tallahassee. They have a good relationship with our elected officials, and part of their job is to help us advocate for that. Let me give you a timely example of that right now. One of the big questions in front of all of us is how much is each county or city going to leave on the table for CARES Act funding? Right. The way CARES Act was set up, funding was set up, was this idea that in March, it seemed like a good idea to say, well, let's make sure we spend all these monies by December 30th, because surely we'll be past COVID right. by then. Yeah. Well, we, right. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Not even. Right. So we had no idea. We didn't have insight into that. Right. We now have politicians we're talking to to say, you know what? We don't want to leave money on the table. Let's make sure that we extend that past December 30th. That has to happen in a coordinated and collective environment. We can't just call every single legislator. We need to create a a thoughtful approach to that. So this is a great way for us to use Feeding Florida and Robin's leverage, uh, but also to use the leverage of the food banks that that work collectively in the state. Uh, When you think about the size and scope of our network, you know, Feeding Tampa Bay alone is $150 million a year business. Mm -hmm. When you think about the collective economic impact of food banks across the United uh, across the state of Florida you're really talking about a significantly powerful uh, group of, 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 of businesses uh, that are enabling community health and well-being I know our elected officials care about the work that we do and want to listen to our experience Robin and feeding Florida helps us tell that story sure and you have a position on the board at feeding Florida as well yes yes what is that position entail what is that like for you again it's it's uh, how do we uh, I was just the past board chair uh, and the responsibility that we have as a collective is to think about how do we build the best food system possible mm-hmm. right so one how do we make sure this system works 
right? So what does that mean in terms of how we move food, resources, how we develop partnerships, all the things I mentioned before. So mm -hmm. there's always got to be a strategic plan around that, right? You want to make sure that you're working in that way. The other thing that, that we do as board members is we had a lot, we have a lot of conversation, even just about tactical responses. So think about something like uh, uh, Hurricane Ada that just uh, impacted uh, our community uh, a week ago. Uh, we have calls uh, where we are moving food resources all over the state in preparation for storms, right? We talk about where we're going to have water or MREs or how we're going to move different resources to respond to different parts of, of a disaster, right? So pre-disaster, we're on a call every day and we're figuring out who can take X number of truckloads or who can provide this service. So we do all of that tactical support together. And then even just think about it this way. Here in uh, Tampa Bay, mm -hmm. right, uh, what do we have every year? That's one of the big events, although I don't know what they're doing this year. Mm -hmm. It's the Strawberry Festival. So what does that mean? We have a lot of it harvest time. Strawberries. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, if you talk to the food bank in Miami, they have a ton of citrus. Mm. So why don't we work out a trade? Right. Fruit swap. Right. <laughs> right. So we can't necessarily get all the citrus products that they get in Miami. Mm -hmm. Right? So we can move food around. When we have excess capacity and capability, not only us as board members, but, you know, Rhonda and her team, along with the ops teams of all the other food banks, they're talking on a regular basis about how do we mm -hmm. make sure that we're moving food most effectively right. throughout the state so that there's better combination of right. all of that. That and to make sure that nothing goes to waste. Yeah, true. We make sure that everything is... is right. Because, you know, our model is when it comes into harvest, mm -hmm. yeah. there's a whole lot of it. Yeah. Yes. And we can't always, our particular community can't always consume all that. So, right, it's sure. the much smarter thing for us to do is to make sure we spread it across right. the state. I can only eat about 10 strawberries in one sitting, personally. I think that's about it. Here's the trick I learned going to the strawberry festival. Uh -huh. Just something you need to know, and this will solve all of your problems. Uh -huh. You simply have to deep fry everything oh. that is strawberry related, and then apparently you can eat a ton of it. Oh, interesting. Oh, tips. I'll have to try that the next time I go. Pro tip. Yeah. Okay. Boy, they deep fried everything. <laughs> With Tums in your pocket. Right. Of course. Of, of course. course. Yeah. It is a fair's fair. It is just, boy, if you want to go experience a country fair, the strawberry festival, perfect place to be. 2021. <laughs> so you talked about how we rally during a disaster, and, and I've been here long enough, of course, pre-COVID. Um, have we changed the way, you know, a lot of people have been concerned, you know, if you move food to a different location, are we going to have enough? Everyone's always concerned right now, are we going to have enough? Can you talk about how we've changed policies and procedures because of the pandemic? Um, of course, we're very thoughtful. What is that change like? Well, I think, you know, going back to Robin for a moment, mm -hmm. I think, you know, what Robin has done and what Feeding Florida has done and the collective of food banks have done is we've become a model disaster recovery organization for the United States. So food banks around the United States call us when they are faced with disasters and say, how do you guys do this? And so I think one of the things that we're really proud of is both the food bank network, uh, but also elected officials, FEMA and others all have discussed how thoughtful and proficient we've become at managing disasters. Unfortunately, we've had our share of opportunities to yes. do that. So we'd like, <laughs> we'd like less practice <laughs> right. uh, than more. 
Uh, but I think it's important to understand we've worked really hard to build out the most thoughtful um, uh, response that we can. Uh, and I forgot the rest of your question. <laughs> how, we, how we've can adapted. How we've, oh, how we've course, adapted during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you think about a typical disaster as they affect us, they typically are swift moving. Right. When we see something like a hurricane, you really think the run up is two weeks and the initial aftermath is about two to three weeks as well. And then people start to get back to their lives. We have the rebuild, as we've talked about. There's crisis, there's the rebuild, and then there's a longer-term uh, recovery. Uh, but, but ultimately, in that immediate aftermath, right, so typically things are quicker. And one of the factors that we would use as people think about disaster, for every month of disaster, it's six months of recovery. Oh, wow. Right. Always. So that's how long it takes someone to get back to normal, because think about it this way. You're living on economic margins to begin with. Mm. You have a particular disaster occur, which does one of two things or both to your household. A, you might lose income because you're not working mm. or B, you may have greater expense because something got broken. Yeah. And so how do you ultimately overcome that economic shocks for the families we serve can be significant. And then to recover from that takes time. Because if your income is slow to come back or the expense is greater, it takes families a longer period of time to get back to economic self-sufficiency and capability. Our experience in disasters over the years have told us that that is a six-month window. One-month disaster, six-month recovery. As we think about the pandemic, this is really uncharted territory for us in many, many ways. I shared earlier today, so... Uh, right now, if the pandemic is nine months old, the crisis, because remember, we're not out of crisis yet. Yeah. Uh, we haven't even moved into recovery yet. Wow. So if the, if the crisis is nine months old, does that mean that the recovery is 54 months? Wow. That's right? a long time. It yeah. is. <laughs> it is. And, and there's, a, there's a shock value to that moment that I just said that. Yeah. But I think that's likely. Because it takes people a long time to get back on their feet. Again, we've told this story many times. And, and for the listener, when someone comes into our care that has an economic crisis, the very first thing they do is they generally will spend down their checking account. Then they'll spend down their savings account. Then they'll run up their credit cards. Then they'll stop paying bills. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then they'll borrow money. Mm -hmm. To recover from all of those decisions takes a long time. Uh, tell me how many uh, 18 or 19-year-olds got their very first credit card, ran that baby sky high. That's right. And how long, right? <laughs> that was me. We've that all done me. it, right? Yeah. Right? It's a journey. It didn't occur to me until one day I sat down and I was making my $22.85 a month payment thinking I'm doing okay, when you realize you're paying off about 15 cents of principal yeah. and the rest of it's interest. Right. So think about the families we serve. It is a long time to rebuild your economic framework, your house household capability. Mm. And one of the things we always want people to understand about the uh, pandemic of this type, funding and support and awareness are always on the front end of the crisis. They're never on the recovery. And one of the things we think is important is we have to continue to talk about the length of the crisis, which means we also want to talk about the length of recovery. The families we serve, it will take some time. God willing, they'll have jobs soon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the reality is even when they get jobs, there's a lot of economic cleanup that families will have to do to return 
to the lifestyle they had pre-pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Something that I think is not common knowledge. I mean, a lot of, I mean, even just, you know, on a, on a layman's level, you think, oh, okay, the crisis is over. You know, they, we either we've got a vaccine or the hurricane passed and things are good now, but it really isn't like that. And I think that's something exactly. we don't really see. We see here at Feeding yes, Tampa Bay. Yes, we know. But I think the average, the average person probably doesn't realize that. Well, I think the nice thing about COVID, to use that term, <laughs> right. probably, not, probably not a good <laughs> sentence to use in any framework. The nice thing about COVID from our perspective as an organization is virtually everybody knows someone impacted by COVID. So it feels more personal. Mm -hmm. And the more personal a crisis feels, the more likely you are to be invested in it getting better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when someone says, uh, my friend got let go, my brother was affected by COVID, my sister lost a job, whatever it is, when folks are able to have that conversation and say, this impacted my universe particularly, it's far easier for us to continue the conversation around, are they back to work yet? Have they recovered economically? And the answer is no. Right. And so we're able to continue to have this conversation and it resonates with people. Uh, I think, you know, uh, for those of us that do this work, uh, you know, when you go to a Saturday mega pantry at HCC or anywhere where we have these or you go distribute food and you see the lines of cars that are still there, it reminds you that we are knee deep still uh, in the crisis and we're grateful uh, particularly to, I think, our um, uh, local uh, newspapers and TV stations that have continued to tell the story, uh, not of Feeding Tampa Bay necessarily, but of those we serve, yes. right? Because it's their story we're responding to, not ours. Right. Um, and so we hope that that conversation continues well past um, uh, the crisis. It yeah. needs to continue on into the recovery. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, Thomas, thank you for sitting with us today for What the Food Bank. I think one thing that we have learned is not only is Feeding Florida there for those in need, Feeding Tampa Bay is there uh, uh, for Tampa Bay mm -hmm. especially, and uh, not just now, but for months and months to come and uh, as long as those need us. So thank you. And uh, We'll see you out there. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on as a guest. I appreciate it. Look forward to having you again. <laughs>